0: Welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence based research and cutting edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, evidence informed, practical based. This is season two, episode number 38. And with the backdrop of the NBA and NHL pre-seasons, I thought it would be a great time to talk about heart health and cardiovascular screening, the types of tests that happen all the time in NHL and NBA training camps, as well as the athlete heart or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Today's guest leading us through the discussion is Mr. Tony Mancy, clinical physiologist with decades of experience working with the NBA's Milwaukee Bucks. In this episode, Tony will discuss the athlete heart. He will define hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, give us some statistics on how many athletes it affects, and most importantly, how it differs from heart disease. He'll also discuss sex differences, deconditioning, and how the type of sport endurance versus power can also impact risk. Tony will then share what an NBA cardiovascular screen protocol looks like with trans thoracic echocardiogram and stress echo tests the implications, and how it informs his practice. And finally, we'll round things out with a discussion about coronary heart disease, the leading cause of mortality worldwide. Tony will talk about some modifiable risk factors, what you can do about it, and of course, the benefits of aerobic training and HIT training as well. Terrific insights here from Tony, a boots-on-the-ground clinician. You can link to the studies discussed in a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you're interested in more on this topic, then definitely circle back and check out season one, episode number 14 on HIT training for health and performance with Dr. Martin Kabbalah, and season one, episode 28, with Dr. Kate Shanahan, former LA Lakers team doctor, for a discussion on nutrition and health. All right, new listeners, welcome aboard. For all our regulars, thanks for tuning back in. Uh, We've got a fantastic list of experts teed up for this fall. You definitely won't want to miss that. So if you haven't already, then definitely subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, whatever your favorite podcatching platform is, and you will get all the latest updates. Or, of course, if you just want to support the show, that's a big help as well. Fantastic. Let's get things rolling. Season 2, Episode 38. Enjoy. My guest today is Tony Mancy a clinical exercise physiologist from the University of wisconsin lacrosse Tony is an expert in cardiovascular physiology, pathophysiology, and pharmacology, with 13 years of experience, which includes working with professional sports teams like the NBA's Milwaukee Bucks, as well as testing and educating many, many cardiac patients. Tony, thanks so much for taking the time today.
1: Uh, thank you, Mark. I appreciate
0: you uh, inviting me to do this podcast. I look forward to it. Fantastic. Well, it's, uh, it's the NBA preseason, so a great time to dive into this topic of heart health, cardiovascular screening, uh, as well as the the athlete heart. And, you know, for me, I'll tell you the first time I heard about this was probably about 30 years ago. Um, a young kid playing and watching basketball, I, I distinctly remember, um, you know, Loyal O'Malley Mount, the running gun style of basketball, and that visual of Hank Gathers, who those are yes. really too young, the All-American basketball player, you know, destined for the pros, all of a sudden collapsing on court. Um, you know, Tragically, he died shortly thereafter. And of course, the medical examiner found that he suffered from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That so, is correct. So Tony, can you get listeners on the same page here and define um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy for us and who that might be impacting?
1: Well, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a um, can be acquired um, genetically. It can be and that's usually the, the case and it involves um, abnormal abnormal functioning of the, the left ventricle basically um, it thickens and the septum which is the uh, tissue between the right and left ventricle, that usually gets enlarged and if it gets t- uh, too enlarged it can inhibit blood flow from the left ventricle, Out through the the aortic uh, valve, and histologically, if you look at um, a person that's got hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, their cell alignment is going to going to be in disarray as opposed to a parallel um, arrangement. Interesting. And yeah, these these changes are precursors for um, Mm -hmm. sudden cardiac death and. Basically, um, it expresses itself through tachyarrhythmias, a person goes into V-fib, and if they're not defibrillated right away, it's, you know, a terminal event.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, obviously, really scary stuff, tragic, um, really emotional events as well, and of course, you know, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, I didn't realize, was the single most common cause of uh, athletic field deaths accounting so for about a third of those deaths. Um and although it is. sudden cardiac death is still the most frequent medical cause, sort of the umbrella term, and it's about, you know, still only what, one in forty forty thousand to eighty thousand, so so not very many, but still obviously very emotional. And I think a lot of listeners are wondering, you know, left ventricle hypertrophy is what happens when you train and get fitter. Um sure. so, so what's this difference between the athlete's heart and heart disease? Um you mentioned a little bit there around from a cellular standpoint. Is there anything else? um a normal
1: um normal heart when you when you train as an athlete certain adaptations take place the myocardium or the um, ventricular walls thicken Uh, this creates an inotropic effect meaning that the left ventricle has the ability to contract harder now there's a principle called the frank starling principle um is a physiological principle and if the um, myocardium gets stretched because not only did the, um, does the myocardium get, get thicker, but the cavity enlarges. And if, it's, if it goes beyond a certain optimal uh, cavity size, then actually the contractility will go down. And that's a principle of the Frank Starling uh, effect. Um, so normal uh, athletic heart, Uh, You're going to see these changes. I think one of the distinct differences is what they call abnormal diastolic uh, filling, meaning when the heart's at rest and it's being uh, supplied by the atrium uh, with blood in a diseased heart, it gets stiff. The ventricle becomes stiff and um, it will not accept the proper amount of blood. Whereas in an athletic heart, you don't have those changes, and that's one of the major distinctions. That, and you don't have the septal
0: um, hypertrophy as as much. Yeah, it's really um, you know fascinating stuff, and definitely when you start to go through the list of athletes, um, you know who've unfortunately succumbed to this. You know, Joe Kennedy, 28 year old pitcher for the Blue Jays. Right. Ryan Shea, U.S. marathon runner. Damian Nash, Denver Broncos running back. Jason Collier, Atlanta Hawks center. Thomas mm-hmm. Arian, San Francisco 49ers offensive lineman. Sergey Zaltok played in the NHL. Miklos Fair, a Hungarian soccer pro. I mean, you know, there's, there's far more people on here than we would think. Um, and, and those, goes, are the
1: high, those are the high-profile cases. You know, exactly. One thing I want to mention, uh, Mark, is that um, it's common, It's more common in, in males. It's more common in African-American males. And um, surprisingly, it's more common in men's basketball and soccer. Interesting. Yeah, that's the epidemiology behind
0: it. Yeah, I was going kind of to telling into my next question because around sex differences, I noticed that in highly trained females, you know, it rarely showed any kind of absolute left ventricle wall thickness. And, you know, a recent study showing that 600 elite female athletes, and none of them had this, whereas um you know, in that, especially that gray area of 13 to 15 millimeters. And, uh, right. and you mentioned obviously men and of course, um, you know, basketball, soccer, um, is there anything in particular in, in those sports besides, uh, ethnicity background that might be predisposing?
1: You know, that's a good question. I, I don't know the exact answer to that. I just know that epidemiologically, that's what, um, Seems to be uh, the, m- the most common in these types of athletes.
0: And are there others? I noticed some other sports as well. We saw, you know, rowing and cycling, obviously, you know, very aerobic sports commonly associated with the you know, increased left ventricular wall thickness. Um, right. But surprisingly, a lot of the power sports, weightlifting, wrestling, are not, uh, they don't see these increases above, you know, 12 to 13 millimeters.
1: No, it's, you'd think so, but um, that's not the case. You know, there's other other etiologies. Um, The most common is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and then the subset of that is hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, where you have that intraventricular septum really kind of inhibiting blood flow. Um, Beyond that, the second leading cause is anomalous coronary arteries, where the normal coronary arteries um, may be... There's a deviation from the origin. They could have abnormal shape or size, and this can lead to myocardial ischemia, and then eventually tachyarrhythmias. And there's, you know, there's a, there's a list of things that we won't get into, but um, like you've heard of Marfan syndrome. Yep, that's that can be a cause of sudden cardiac death in athletes, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of it. You know, it's a inherited connective tissue disorder. It usually affects the aorta and the aorta becomes aneurysmal or it dissects and then you've got a terminal event.
0: Yeah, it's uh, again fascinating, fascinating stuff. And for someone like yourself, yeah. a clinical physiologist, if we, you know, continue to look at this from a sports lens to, to start with here, you know, what would a preseason, whether it's NBA protocol or even another sport, look like in, in general in terms of you know, the tests that you might run and, and, and what those sure. tests are looking for.
1: Well, specifically with Milwaukee Bucks, which I've been working with for the last 13 years, um, we're talking about a, these, these guys are elite athletes. And we're, we use, um, this is NBA protocol. Um, they dictate what, what what happens in terms of testing. And the first thing that happens is each player gets a resting transthoracic echocardiogram and what that does it, it, def- it defines the the integrity of the heart the size of the heart the chamber size the wall thickness all four valves whether they're functioning properly um, and that's that's the basis of a transthoracic echo gotcha beyond that do you have any questions about that mark
0: Oh, just for the uh, listeners there, so in terms of establishing baselines, is that sort of compared year to year for the, for the players?
1: Or? Right. Now, the NBA requires this um, testing every single year. And, uh, and it's, in my opinion, it's a little overkill, but you know, you've got an athlete that's getting paid millions and millions of dollars and they want to protect their investment. So they can do a baseline and they can compare longitudinally, whether or not they're, you know, for example, the echo, if they're having any significant structural
0: abnormalities that may, you know,
1: come to fruition.
0: Yeah, and what type of abnormalities might you pick up on, uh, on a test like that?
1: Well, like we talked about, abnormal uh, thickening of the septum, you might pick up some um, some valve disorders like mitral valve regurgitation, or a, a big one would be aortic stenosis. Um, that can be really debilitating. So we look for those type of things. And then um, beyond that, they're required to take a exercise tolerance test with imaging, and that's called a stress echocardiogram. Mm-hmm. And they uh, get on a treadmill, and we have, a, have them do a... a treadmill test according to the Bruce protocol, which every three minutes we increase the speed and the grade, and we monitor continuously their their heart rate, blood pressure, and we look at um, first of all, before they even get on the treadmill, they do a, a resting echo of, of the left side of the heart only, and they do it in several different views, and it looks at the looking at the contractility of the heart. If you've got uh, any issues with the blood supply of the heart, the heart's not going to be contracting properly, and that shows up at rest and at peak exercise. So an athlete will get on the treadmill, and gradually, every three minutes, we increase the speed and the grade. And we want to get that, according to NBA protocol, their heart rate has to be above 85, and they like more towards 95%. At that point, when we hit that uh, parameter, there's an abrupt stop. They lay back down in bed, and there's an echo person right next to the bed that does the, the resting echo and also this peak echo. It's a sudden stop. They, they image the, the heart at peak exercise, and they can look at the wall motion, and they can they can determine whether or not there's any abnormalities in the contractility of the heart. So those are the two big, um, the resting echo and the stress echocardiogram that um, we can look at and see if there's any, uh, you know, abnormal wall motion or any structural integrity problems.
0: Terrific. And, uh, you know, are there certain arrhythmias, uh, Tony, that uh, just require sort of monitoring uh, by the medical staff versus, uh, again, you mentioned stenosis previously, things that might jump out where the the player might need uh, um, to be referred for more and um, more medical testing
1: well what we're looking for again would be um tachyarrhythmias. now most people when you get them on a treadmill and you're monitoring they might have premature beats atrial premature beats that's totally normal you know you're, you're secreting more catecholamines when you start to exercise and makes the myocardium more irritable um, but we're looking for especially when they're exercising Does the blood pressure go up on a linear basis, the systolic blood pressure? Because the normal response would be with increasing workloads, your systolic blood pressure goes up. Uh, Your diastolic stays about the same, and there's plus or minus standard deviation, maybe 10 beats a minute. So that's that's one of the parameters we look at, um, along with the
0: contractility of the heart. Fantastic. Well, I mean, We've definitely covered here the you know the athlete heart hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and how a medical staff you know for a professional team or collegiate team would be screening for this. Sure, um, but maybe we can zoom out here a little and talk about how you know exercise is indeed obviously one of the most powerful tools for improving heart health. Um, it's been associated with beneficial changes in most cardiovascular risk factors, right? Like uh, including lipids, things like blood pressure, insulin sensitivity, uh, weight management, so. Can you maybe talk to listeners now about, you know, just the normal and positive adaptations to aerobic training?
1: Well, sure. Essentially, meaning in the heart, uh, the heart cavity enlarges, um, and that allows for greater uh, filling capacity, and that would increase your stroke volume. Um, and by definition, Heart rate times stroke volume equals cardiac output, the amount of blood that's circulating at any given workload. So if you can increase the chamber size, increase stroke volume, then you know what happens is you a trained athlete, their heart rate will decrease um, because you've got this you know cavity enlargement, um, but you're still maintaining maintaining the same cardiac output. That's one of the one of the uh, things that happen on the periphery um, meaning in your, in your tissues with aerobic training you develop um, more mitochondria the mitochondrial density goes up as well as the capillary density so your ability to extract oxygen is increased and that increases your vo2 max a
0: measure of cardiorespiratory fitness yeah so important for you know athletes obviously to have a baseline level of aerobic fitness no matter what the sport and of course uh, general populations as well especially today with sedentary living being just sort of the norm and people not getting enough movement right um, and of course too quick. many people excuse me mark I just wanted to interject here yeah for sure I see I, I
1: see more and more but it. it's, it's kind of sad you, you see these um, younger people that are developing type 2 diabetes at a younger age, obesity at a younger age. And when I was growing up, you know, my brothers and I were always active, all playing. You know, now, unfortunately, people are on computers, they're playing video games, they eat at fast food places, and obesity is an epidemic. 70% of, um, of the, the
0: population in the U.S. is considered obese. Yeah, it's, um, it is amazing how in the last four decades things have changed so dramatically in the uk this year in london they had um one of the hottest summers on record for the last 40 or 50 years and i think they had a picture of a beach i think it was in the 1970s um to show the last you know recorded um you know very warm hot summer and it was amazing because when you looked at the population it was a shot of hundreds of people on a beach and it was difficult to find an overweight or obese person you sort of had to look really closely Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how four decades later, you know, that same photo is just a total, totally different um, image. And, and like you yes. mentioned, just the environment around us, the food we're eating, uh, lack of movement. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, no surprise, coronary artery disease, you know, leading cause of mortality worldwide. Of exactly. Course, you know, a bit like you mentioned before, there's some non-modifiable risk factors like age and genetics that can obviously increase risk. But what about some of the modifiable risk factors, the ones that people sure, can do sure. something about? Can you list off a few of those?
1: Well, some of the modifiable risk factors would be um, your blood lipids, for example. With, you, with exercise, you can actually increase your HDL. That is the uh, good cholesterol. It takes cholesterol from your uh, arteries and arterioles and bloodstream and brings them back to your liver. Um, it takes the LDL back to your, to your liver to get metabolized. So you can affect your blood lipid profile with uh, exercise you can obviously uh, affect a little bit of your obesity although I always say you can never out exercise a bad diet with the exception if you're like a ultra marathon or something like that you can you can eat 6,000 calories a day and you'll burn it all up but for the average individual exercise in my opinion is good for weight maintenance but it is not really good for weight loss um the other um big one would be smoking i mean that's a definite no-no for obviously for cardiovascular risk and pulmonary risk and cancer so you um you know lack of excuse me uh, lack of physical activity along with uh not controlling stress in your life that's a big factor as well um You need to take time to either meditate, you know, read, whatever it takes to try to calm yourself down, uh, center yourself so that you're not um, so stressed out. And today that's sometimes easier said than done. And you had mentioned some non-modifiable risk factors. You obviously can't change your age, your genetics, but you're born within a specific genetic profile and you've got these other modifiable risk factors that you can Either you know you can manage them, and you can change the outcome of um, you know the disease process if
0: you're um, doing the right things. And Tony, for yourself in clinical practice working in the general population, what are some of the things that you would see you know in assessing heart health with patients?
1: Sure. well, we look uh, we look at um, what I call the index of suspicion. If somebody you know is coming in and they're younger, They don't have a family history. Um, So their index of suspicion is pretty low, but they're having maybe some atypical symptoms, atypical angina, which means they're having maybe angina at rest and not uh, with increasing workloads. We'll do an exercise tolerance test, um, a Bruce protocol test on these individuals, monitor their, their heart rate, continuous EKG, blood pressure, those type of things, but without imaging. Now, if you get somebody that's has a different risk factor profile, then there's a myriad of different tests, imaging tests that we can use to determine whether or not these people in actuality have um, coronary disease. One of the tests would be the stress echo um, that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. A person that's got compromised coronaries, you may not see it at rest and that's why we kind of do a resting echo first and then we get them on the treadmill but at peak exercise when uh, uh, you've got a uh, imbalance in coronary supply and uh, coronary supply versus demand you've you've got a situation where it creates ischemia and what will happen is the left ventricle will not be contracting robustly like it should Um, some other testing that we do and unfortunately nowadays um, because of the obesity epidemic um, in our clinic we have bought a PET scanner and that kind of can, if you've got somebody that's remarkably obese we can put them in the PET scanner give them a radioactive uh, isotope that travels to the heart and it will not travel to areas that have Uh, Stenotic or closed areas and we can look at that and determine whether or not the person's got coronary disease and the next step after that would be if if it comes out positive then we take him to the cath lab and do an angiogram which you know you don't want to take an angiogram as invasive um, it's expensive so we do this other testing ahead of time if it becomes a situation where it looks positive, then we, the next step would be the angiogram, and if we find that they have significant lesions, meaning a lesion that's seventy percent more, in a, one of the major coronary arteries, then they will angioplasty that segment and then do place a
0: intercoronary stent. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely um, amazing what we can do from a you know technology and and then and procedure standpoint um, on the other side of the spectrum you know unfortunate that it, it sort of gets to that point and f- for yourself working with with patients and clients you know what are some of the things that you try to reinforce to help people you know get their heart health back on track
1: well obviously you want to stress um, get out there and, and, and be active um, if you're a smoker quit smoking Um, you're the diet expert, but I, I always, you know, I lean towards the Mediterranean diet, which is, you know, a diet that's, um, limits your red meat intake, um, kind of stresses, um, plant-based foods, you know, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, um, replacing bad fats with, you know, which are... The saturated fats with olive oil, canola oil, um, and then eating fish and poultry at least twice a week. So, and again, you're the expert in nutrition. I, but when I when when patients ask me, that's kind of what I I direct them to. One thing I want to backtrack on Mark too. We were talking about sudden cardiac death, and I think this is really important, and I see it more and more in like gyms, in like other arenas where. Um, you're seeing defibrillators, automatic uh, defibrillators that are standard operating procedure. Because one of the first things you you need to do if somebody goes into a cardiac arrest is put one of those defibrillators on them. It'll automatically determine whether they need to be shocked. If so, it'll shock them back and hopefully into a normal, what they call sinus rhythm. It detects whether or not they're in VTAC or VFib ventricular fibrillation which is um can you know go down the path of asystole and and death so it's really important and i see a lot more of it in public
0: places where they have automatic defibrillators available for people and it's minimal training to use it yeah no great points and definitely uh, for people who have facilities gyms etc you know definitely familiarize yourself with that and also check the batteries as well i mean i know that's another one that can creep up on people when they're not being sort of replaced. And the beauty of those devices, as you mentioned, is just they're very straightforward in terms of uh, being able to operate them. I mean, really um, leading you through the different steps, which is, which is terrific. And you know, you'd mentioned diet and obviously, um, you know, hugely important. And there's a recent study here in, in Europe showing that, you know, the processed food intake uh, in the UK, mm-hmm. in terms of the percentage of household income was about 50% of all the food and when you went down to places like France, you were down to like 15%. And when you were in Italy, mm-hmm. it was 12%. And Spain, it was 16%. So it was amazing how for folks just getting away And of course, all those places have much better, um, heart health, uh, outcomes. population. Yeah, outcomes, right? I'm sure are
1: a lot better. Um, yeah. so
0: it's amazing. I just, yeah, getting back to real food is, is a phenomenal first step to go. Um, on the exercise side of things, obviously building an aerobic base is a good place to start. If people are, are unfit, just as you mentioned, getting out, getting active. Um, and you want to make sure if you're starting an exercise program, Mark, that um, if
1: you're new to it, you want to make sure that you go to your primary care physician, get clearance, and what you want to do is start out uh, slowly and do it progressively. You don't want to hit the gym and go 90 miles an hour right away. You want to do this as a slow,
0: progressive increment. Perfect. Yeah, I was going to dive too into my uh, question around, You know, do you have any protocols or suggestions on how people can can start out or, or progress their aerobic uh, training to, to get themselves back. uh, Well, the American Heart
1: Association and the world um, health organization, they're recommending adults 18 to 64 um, exercise at least 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity aerobic physical activity, or they, they say you can um, do the same thing, but, change the intensity and then you can decrease the, the minutes to 75 and then along with that they want you to um, and of course the, those involve the major muscle groups when you're doing aerobic training and they're for also sure. saying resistance training is important that's important for maintaining healthy bones especially for women postmenopausal, menopausal um, and just maintaining functional capacity, capacity as you get older Um uh, those are some, some of the recommendations by the big organizations. And I'm, I think you've had podcasts on HIIT training in the past. And yeah, Martin Gabala. Yep. He's the, he's the Martin Gabala, Gabala et al. are the experts in that area. And that's a proven um, entity. Uh, they've done a lot of research on it. It's high-intensity interval training where you can condense your workout Uh, from, you know, you see people in the gym working out for hour, hour and a half. Well, a lot of people don't have that, the time to do that. And if you uh, follow uh, these protocols where you, for example, in my own experience, I'll get on a stationary bike, I'll ride at a moderate intensity for a couple of minutes, get off the saddle and go to like almost a hundred percent, you know, capacity, for about um, 45 seconds and then sit back down on the saddle, have an active recovery, and go through that cycle for about 15 minutes. And they've, they've shown that that type of exercise pattern can really affect um, your VO2 max
0: and also caloric uh, expenditure. Yeah, that's great advice. And, um, you know, as you mentioned time effective which is terrific and I was blown away by some of the, the notes and Martin's research around just even cardiac rehab in terms of the safety now obviously people want to get some some support from their um, their medical team but that's that's really um, amazing as well to see that the, the the improvements that one can make from a recovery standpoint are also really, sure really proven. Well, so
1: another thing I want to dovetail into is okay as you in your everyday life I mean I've worked at an institution. I work on the eighth floor. I've never taken the elevators. I always, I don't recommend this for everybody, but I sprint up every morning. Now, instead of taking the elevators for the average person, start using the stairwell. You know, um, you don't necessarily have to sprint like I do, but use the stairwell. When you park in a parking lot, don't park real close to the building. Park away. You know, so you can do these things not passively, but Make them part of your lifestyle um, and then
0: gradually build up your your functional capacity. Yeah, it's such a great suggestion. I mean, definitely parking further away, too, that's where all the open spots are. So that's definitely a great one. Um, and I'm always amazed, too. I mean, when we talk about environment for food, it's it's a little bit the same with um, with activity and movement because, you know, we kind of hide the stairwells in all these buildings. If you go into office buildings downtown Toronto and the major cities, it's, it's tough sure. to even find the stairs. So it's amazing how... Um, you know, I've got a few clients who are who are architects and and kind of redesigning a lot of these buildings to make to make climbing the stairs even more uh, appealing and, and accessible is key. But definitely do a little homework, find out where the stairwell is, and, and get in there. and um, It's amazing how even just one trip up the stairs, and building your way up to getting up those eight flights or whatever it might be, is as you mentioned, just a great way to to bang out the you know basically like right. a hit workout. But you're getting one one good set, right?
1: Well, exactly, and I do it in the morning and uh with gabala et al call it uh go call it call that exercise snacking you know where you it might take you less than five minutes or a couple of minutes but do that a couple times during the day
0: get up and move around it really is beneficial for you yeah it's funny i get over here in london in the Marylebone station stations a train station in, in london and there's i get some funny looks there's a staircase that has got to have maybe 120 150 steps and you know, take those two at a time all the way to the top, and you know everyone on the escalator sort of looks at you like, "What's that person doing?" Um, but again, a yeah, great opportunity to get in there and get the get the exercise of the day. Right, and and the problem I
1: see too is, you know, when you're counseling patients, you can lead the horse to water, but you can't make them drink, and that's the, that's the challenge. You know, you can educate people all you want, but they have to inherently want to do it. And, I try to educate people as much as I can, but you have to realize they, it's like quitting smoking. They know it's wrong. Um, they've been counseled by their physicians, by whomever, but until they make that, you know, step in their own mind that they want to quit or they want to initiate an exercise program, it won't help. So, you know, it, it won't, it won't happen, I should say. Um, so that's a tough situation.
0: You, you, you you can provide the tools, but they have to provide the execution. Yeah, it's very well said. And, um, you know, I recently had Dr. Peter Jensen on, a uh, sports psychologist, and, you know, he always talks about, yeah, that idea of logic. You know, as humans, we sort of, um, we don't make as many decisions based on logic as we'd like to think. Because as you mentioned, people wouldn't smoke or they wouldn't do these behaviors. And, you know, he always talks about that emotional side and the imagery side being a, a real language and to try to connect people with that. And so I think... As you mentioned once people are ready it, it helps but if we can if we can tap into some of the emotional aspects that get them motivated um, that's a big that's a big one for dr. Jensen to help uh, create some change so for folks listening in uh, you can definitely check out that um, episode as well he's got a lot of great uh, great insights on that uh, that side of things
1: that sounds good I, well, Another thing I want to mention too mark because um, I'm trained in advanced cardiac life support which is one step above you know CPR we can administer medications and um, there's a protocol we follow, but I think everybody in general, if they can, you want to, you want to, um, get trained in CPR. It's really easy. Um, it's nothing scientific and you can save somebody's life. You know, uh, while you're waiting for EMS to come, as long as you're pumping on their chest, you're perfusing their brain and their coronary arteries and their heart.
0: And that can save somebody. Absolutely. hundred percent. It's, uh, Great, great suggestion there, Tony. And, you know, definitely want to respect your time here. So before we wrap up, last uh, couple questions for you. Sure. Um, One of them's on the evolution of of research in the area of the athlete heart and sudden cardiac death. Um, Where do you think we might be in the next five or ten years in terms of, you know, whether it's diagnostics or some type of advancement?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, they're looking at doing more genetic testing. Um, I think for sure if you have somebody... Uh, a family member that has uh, a history of cardiomyopathy, that, you know, more genetic testing is going to be available. That's one, I think, area
0: that people are going to look at. Fantastic. And to round things out here, Tony, you know, from 30,000 feet, if folks are listening in and potentially struggling with being, you know, overweight or, or know that they've got high blood pressure or some of the other risk factors that we talked about, You know, what's a a simple tip that you can give to to help uh, get people started in the right direction? Well, I guess, you know, a
1: simple tip would be, would be, you know, initiate the program. And if, you know, I always say, you know, I can, I can work out on my own without um, anybody else. And that's, you know, just years and years of doing it, but maybe get a a friend to um, work out with you or, uh, sign up for a gym, it, it holds you accountable, uh, and that way you can establish a habit, a habit, and then that can turn into a lifestyle, like it is for me and probably you, and it can, you can remain that way for the rest of your life. And I don't know the psychological studies, but I think what I tell people is, okay, you wouldn't miss work. Put in your daytime or your calendar that you're going to work out Let's say Monday, Wednesday, Friday, one day of the weekend. And you're not going to miss it unless you're, you know, you're ill. And once you establish that pattern, over time it becomes a habit. And then over years, it's your lifestyle. And you're going to reap the benefits from that. You're going you know, to lower your blood pressure. You're going to lose some weight. If you're a diabetic, you, you could reverse the process and maybe get off the medications.
0: And again, it's a matter of execution. Yeah, it's a great advice, and you know, as you mentioned, once you start turning this into a habit, it just requires a heck of a lot less inspiration and a heck of a lot less motivation to get yourself to do it. It just becomes automated, and and, right, it becomes part of your daily
1: daily lifestyle. And if you don't do it, I mean, I I always call it a positive addiction, Um, meaning that you know, when you let's say I haven't worked out for three or four days, I, I, I feel the difference. Now it's a bad addiction when you let's say have a, a acute injury and you and you keep exercising through it. That's the wrong mentality. You want to obviously rest and recover
0: and um, try not to um, blow through those injuries. Terrific, Tony. Well, listen, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your great work? I'm actually on the uh, on Twitter.
1: Um, started on that a couple of years ago. And my, my following is rapidly getting, you know, increasing. My Twitter handle is um, at F-I-T-M-S-L-A-X. Uh, if they want to uh, log in and look at my Twitter feed. I usually uh, tweet about cardiovascular, cardiac um, issues and also Issues related to exercise physiology and some diet. Like I said, that's not my forte,
0: but um, that's a good good way to get in you know contact with me through the through the internet. Awesome. Well, that's uh, definitely how I uh, came to know you, Tony, and uh, really appreciate all the stuff you put out on Twitter. And uh, we'll definitely include links here to the papers that we discussed here, as well as your um, Twitter handle there at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Uh, thanks again for coming on, Tony. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Tony or want to leave a comment on today's episode, uh, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at DrBubbs. So definitely keep those questions coming. If you enjoy the show, please take a minute, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcatching platform, and definitely leave us a comment. It's greatly appreciated. Fantastic. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll see you guys all next week.